arriving in U.S. mail from St. Louis in the original de Havilland DH-4 biplane and 10 bulky gunny sacks are the combined audiobook renditions and supplemental background information as presented in podcast form by moi, me, Robert P. Fitton. Good evening to one and all, wherever in the galaxy you make your home. This program is about unsolved mysteries. Whenever possible, the actual family members and police officials have participated in recreating the events. What you are about to see is not a news broadcast. Tonight, we'll examine four new mysteries. Each one has been recreated in detail, wherever possible using the actual participants in the hope that someone watching may know the truth. Join me. You may be able to help solve a mystery. ask Robert Stack in the original Unsolved Mysteries if someone dreaming could solve an unsolved mystery. In The Butterfly and the Deadly Storm, only two people know about the unsolved deaths of Billy and Shane as well as Bud Kerrigan, and they're Catherine and Tucker. Dmitri Maritokas and his investigators are frantic about anything threatening Conrad Ritter's campaign for governor. As Catherine and Tucker uncover remnants of the murders from decades before, Maritokas is ready to kill if it will continue the murder cover-up. Several strong leads are found from people still alive when Ritter and Maritokas lived in Plymouth and Ritter was a local disc jockey. One of those leads amounts to actual witness testimony to Ritter's evil deeds. Amid the campaigning, Ritter himself threatens to return to Plymouth and confront Catherine and Tucker. And now, episode three of The Butterfly and the Deadly Storm by Robert P. Fitton. Chapter 11. Maritokas accelerated and the sports car gained speed down the freeway. The skies had cleared and the traffic thinned out. His cell rang and he picked it up off the console. Maritokas. Dimitri, it's Alexei. Yes, Alexei. I am in Ohio watching Jenna's friend, Rosalind Paganani. Well, what the hell does she know? Not sure. I'm trailing her. But I heard from back east my contact at radio station tells me that the woman and the cowboy have been seen at WXBN within the last hour. I'm going to make call and take care of Sid Horowitz. Maritoka sat up as he sped along. Did Nick Rizzo say he was going to kill Sid? When he did not reply, Maritokas continued. Nick Rizzo is landing in Boston as we speak. He'll find Tucker and the girl. Nothing happens without orders from me. I want to know how they found out any of this. Then we kill them. What about Dan Jensen? He is a liability. Danny doesn't know anything, or at least any of the pertinent details. Keep a tail on that Paganini woman and, and report back to me in 24 hours. Dimitri slammed down the phone on the seat and punched in Nick Rizzo's number. The line rang and he exhaled as he drove. When Nick Rizzo's message started, Dimitri crunched his teeth. Nick, you're a son of a bitch. 
before driving to see Jansen in the retirement home, Tucker brought the van under the highway bridge on Route 44. He signaled along a rusted chain-link fence and slowed at the iron gates to Oak Ridge Cemetery. He navigated through the cemetery's narrow paths, along rows of slate-weathered stones with worn names and inscriptions. He stopped the van at the top of the hill and got out. One of the kids, raking the leaves, walked over to the van and directed Tucker to a shed near a highway fence. Tucker turned to Catherine. He says the groundskeeper might know where Bud is buried. He got inside and started the van again. They moved upward toward a light metal-sided building away from the highway. I still can't believe we've both been drawn back here. Well, I'm kind of losing track of that myself, he said, pulling up to the next shed. A tall guy with curly steel hair and an orange sweatshirt worked on an inverted snowblower. Excuse me, I'm looking for a grave. The man lit a cigarette and quickly exhaled. Who you looking for? Bud Carrigan. Oh, yeah, I, I know the grave. Then he is buried here, said Catherine. Yeah, he said, pointing the cigarette toward the adjacent tree-lined hill. See those maples up top? Catherine nodded and peered through the windshield at the bare maples. He died in 1958. September 7th, 1958. Charles Arnold. I've been in this cemetery for 20 years, ma'am. Well, thanks for your help, said Tucker, briefly squeezing his hand. What about Shane Carrigan or William Ellis? I don't know them. Ain't buried here. Thank you. Catherine watched him return to the shed. He hurled the cigarette across the asphalt as they ascended up the road. With a slight rise, Tucker pointed to a gray granite stone's chiseled letters. Carrigan, Charles Arnold Carrigan, June 27, 1902, September 7, 1958. May Elizabeth Carrigan, June 29, 1908, December 13, 1962. Catherine pushed her lips together as she moved with trepidation toward the stone. I can't explain this. Uh, who the hell would believe it? asked Tucker. Maybe Jansen. Jansen was going to the DA once they had something, said Catherine. She knelt on the ground and with her fingers outlined the chiseled granite representation of Bud's name and the dates of his birth and death. I wonder what Jansen really thinks happened to them, asked Tucker. Catherine held his wrist. If he's in the same shape as Sid, we've got problems. Tucker's face tightened and he panned the graveyard. I want to know why he didn't nail Ritter. Poor Bud. Taken in and then killed by Meritokas, said Tucker. I'd like to know Dmitri Meritokas's background, she said. I tell you, he was the guy in the boat, the guy who dumped the bodies. And there was a yellow Studebaker parked near the portico. Something is very odd about that. She shook her head and pushed back her hair in the winter sun. An image of Sakalatita in a long sea-green waistcoat wandered along the hill. Oh, dear God! What is it? She ran forward as he called, but the image disappeared into the woods. Tucker caught up to her. Did you see that? It was him. Who? Who was it? Sakalatita. Your Indian doctor? She pinched the bridge of her nose. I'm cracking up. <laughs> Sometimes I wish I had never had these dreams. Why me? Well, I've asked myself the same thing. I'm just stressed. No, no. There has to be a reason, Catherine, for what you just saw and for the dreams. We live in opposite areas of the country, but somehow these two people got inside our heads. 
What we saw was their reality, and I feel an obligation more than anything else I've ever felt in my life. I have to find the truth here. Catherine nodded and gazed back at Bud Stone. You're right. He was murdered, and so were Billy and Shane. Tucker stopped in front of a long plaza. Behind the plaza, a supermarket extended up the hill. He checked the map and then turned to Catherine. According to this, if we just go around back, we can take Summer Street to Seaview Village. Let's find Dan Jansen. Tucker pulled through the plaza and around the supermarket. He rolled through the stop sign and onto Summer Street. She glanced back to the supermarket's concrete blocks in the plaza below. This would have been Capitol Hill, streets and houses. That's what Bud Kerrigan thought. Ruthless. These people were utterly ruthless. Tucker smiled from one side of his mouth. They think the swindle was buried just like Bud Kerrigan. He slowed at a series of gray-sided townhouses with a smattering of pine trees. The slightly larger main office had sliders facing the parking lot. Jansen has lived with this knowledge, said Catherine as they exited the van and Tucker power-locked the doors. They moved up the cement handicap ramp. Maybe he finally just gave up. Maybe. He opened the office door and a large black lady in a blue dress smiled. May I help you? Catherine stepped forward. We're looking for Dan Jansen. A captivating smile filled her wide face. Oh, Danny is up with the morning group, the dancing group. I don't know whether he's teaching it or just showing off. Oh, great. Then he is here, said Catherine. Oh, Danny is almost 85. He's been here since he retired from the police department. He's outlived everybody because he loves life. Would it be possible to speak with him this morning? asked Tucker. Well, be my guest. Danny will talk to just about anybody. She spun her chair around and pointed to a large white door next to a stone fireplace. Our recreation room is right through that door. We just go right in? Go right ahead. Tucker smiled. Thank you so much, ma'am. He escorted Catherine toward the door. Music and people laughing filtered outside. Tucker opened the door. A white-haired man in a bright green blazer and yellow pants glided across the parquet floor. When the big band tune ended, he raised his partner's hand upward. Then they all clapped. The white-haired man patted his forehead with a blue handkerchief and talked to several younger women as he drifted toward the snack table. He had a crisp New England accent, notoriously neglecting his R's. Catherine recognized Dan Jansen's voice. He had a laugh that sounded like a machine gun as it trailed off. At my age, I don't worry about cholesterol, heart attacks, or cancer. I, I eat what I want, I do what I want, and I don't know when to shut up. The woman around Jansen giggled like girls parading after a school dance. But Danny, we have to watch our figures. No, I have to watch your figures. Excuse me, uh, Sergeant Jansen, said Tucker in a clear voice. Jansen, around six feet tall, with eyes darker than Tucker's brown eyes, turned quickly. Son, I haven't been called sergeant since my daughter Marjorie got married and Jimmy Carter was president. Do I know you? No. Call me Dan, he shook Tucker's hand and gazed over at Catherine. And what can I do for you, beautiful young lady? I'm Catherine Jenner, she said with a grin. You wear your age well, Mr. Jansen, said Tucker. Well, I thank you. Years of tripping the life fantastic. Mr. Jansen, 
said Catherine. We've come into some information. Oh, yeah? He asked as the music shook the CD player again, and he watched the younger woman. Did I win the lottery, or am I inheriting money from a long-lost cousin? Tucker cleared his throat. Does the uh, Project Capitol Hill ring a bell? Immediately, Jansen's face flushed, and for the first time, he seemed at a loss for words. And Bud Kerrigan's death? asked Catherine. I have to dance, my friends. Tucker grabbed his arm. We know the story, Dan. Then why do you want to talk to me? We need you to fill in the details. What about Dimitri Maritokas? Jansen again dabbed the sweaty beads off his forehead. Listen, I don't know anything. Tucker folded his arms. Bud died in a car accident after losing everything in a land deal. Jansen pursed his lips, patted his forehead again, and shook his head. Well, that's public record. I didn't know Bud Kerrigan personally or anything about this Capitol Hill thing. Good luck to you both. He looked at them one more time and then headed back to another group of women across the room. Then he danced across the hall. He knows, Tucker. He knows. I know he knows. But why won't he talk about it? The woman from behind the desk walked through the doorway. She smiled and moved closer. Oh, you found Mr. Jansen. We did, said Tucker. He wrote the hotel name on the back of a piece of scrap paper and handed it to her. I guess Mr. Jansen is busy. Can you just let him know we're staying at the Bay Inn? Sure, good old Danny is always after the ladies. Thank you, said Catherine as they headed into the corridor. He knows, he knows. Tucker stared at Jansen several times. Jansen glanced at them but continued speaking with the women as he danced. He had lost his jovial demeanor. That man has a lot of information, Catherine, and I don't know why he won't share it, but he may be the key to unraveling all of this. Catherine gazed at the bright TV monitor behind the bar. The national and international news seem unimportant. I've searched for an hour on the computer, Tucker. There's nothing sinister on Dimitri Meritokas. He works for Conrad Ritter as his manager. That makes no sense. Tucker removed the fork from his mouth and chewed the chicken. Then he gestured with the fork. Sid can't speak. Jansen is different. He doesn't want things to get out. You've seen him. He's still in great shape, even at 85. Forty years hasn't hurt him, said Catherine, checking the monitor. I don't think anybody paid him off. Maybe he's at an age where he thinks it's useless. He simply knows when to keep his mouth shut. Catherine nodded and nibbled on her fried clams. The report on the TV switched to Conrad Ritter. The gray-haired Ritter and Clips interviewed the president. She hit Tucker's wrist. Oh, here we go. Look, Tucker, look. Yeah, there he is, and it all started right here on the hill at XBN. He went right to the top, all right. Ritter was filmed earlier in the day, walking into the tall, green glass office building in Orlando, housing his studio. He led an entourage into the building lobby. Someone turned up the TV volume, and the announcer's voice echoed around the bar. Ritter had no comment about reports he will resign his position on the Conrad Ritter Show this evening and announce his candidacy for the governorship of Florida. Ritter moved with the others into an olive-colored elevator. Listen tonight on the show. Current's Ruggle polling service gives Conrad Ritter a 22-point spread over his nearest challenger, Governor Joe McLaughlin, in that race. 
Pundits have speculated Ritter may be using the governor's position as a stepping stone into national politics, possibly the presidency in four or eight years. For now, we'll have to wait for the announcement that's almost guaranteed to come this evening on the Conrad Ritter Show. This is John Burlingame reporting on CN News. The anchor leaned his shoulder and looked into the camera. Maybe Conrad needs a replacement. I'm available, he said to the woman next to him. She grinned as he glanced at her. I guess stranger things have happened. He's got that right, said Catherine. Tucker sipped his coffee and savored the flavor. You know, I don't want to come out with anything unless we have exact proof. Without it, they'll bury us. I'm just a woman from Ellaby, Ohio. I go to my job every day, and I can't say I'm looking forward to the national press swarming all over us because we've implicated Conrad Ritter in murders from 40 years ago. We have to funnel whatever we have to someone who can do something with it, an attorney or a DA. Or his enemies in the governor's race, said Catherine with a grin. That would fix his wagon. You know, despite what I just said, I think of poor old Bud Kerrigan up in the cemetery. He never got to live out his life, and neither did Billy and Shane. That's what really angers me about Ritter's success. Tucker leaned back. He studied her face and nodded. We need to find more on Maritokas. Maybe. I bet the trail ends at Capitol Hill. Chapter 12 In his office chair, Ritter snickered at Dimitri's mirror image as Julie applied the powdery makeup to his face. Her long blonde hair swept across his shoulder, and she returned his smile. Dimitri clicked the cell and tucked it in his pocket. The phone rang immediately. Meritokas. No, I said call all the people at the networks. I want coverage when he leaves the building. Right, right. I have 22 minutes to air. Bye. Nick Rizzo's name was on the screen. Listen, you keep your trigger finger in your pocket. Find those two and find out how they found out about any of this. I want to know who the hell they really are and who they work for. Got it? Got it. Dimitri crunched the phone as he continued down the corridor. Ritter caught sight of him as he entered the main room. Well, you look nervous, Dimitri. Shut up. Dimitri adjusted his red turtleneck and put on his tan jacket. Ritter waved to Julie with his fingers as she left the dressing room. Dimitri quickly kicked the door shut and focused his dark eyes on Ritter. You're taking running for governor much too lightly, Spot. You mean the voice shouldn't have nerves of steel? Ritter stood and stretched his arm skyward. One more hour and I'm out of this rut. Whenever you have nerves of steel, the program becomes stiff. You get out there and don't be so damn cocky. This is serious business in the minds of the voters. They can sense when you think the job should be handed to you on a silver platter. Get your act together. My act is together and always has been. Don't tell me about what people think. <laughs> I've been gauging viewers for a long time. You worry too much. Dimitri grabbed him by the shoulders. I have a whole plethora of interest groups who are counting on me, and I'm counting on you. We need a constituency. We have the power base, but that doesn't mean anything unless you get the damn votes. We've got the votes, said Ritter, gritting his teeth. 
While I admire your cleverness, Dimitri, and I always have, I might add, it's my talent that's got us where we are, and it's my talent that will get us where we're going. Dimitri was not often flustered. I would only say that you should remember from whence you have come, my friend. Ritter brushed his white shirt and slipped his arm into his navy blazer's smooth tailored sleeves. He gave Dimitri a fleeting grimace and opened the door. Getting flummoxed over something he had firmly in his grasp made no sense. Through the open door, Karen Gertz's short red hair blurred across the studio as she positioned cameras and barked out orders. Everyone seemed nervous. Conrad, we have 20 minutes. Dimitri watched his every move. 20 minutes till liftoff, said Ritter, chuckling. We have several requests for an interview after the show. Oh, talk to Dimitri. He's on top of this, and he'll go ballistic if he's not consulted. Dimitri shook his head as Ritter pulled back his leather chair and sat in the desk he had occupied for so many years. She leaned over his shoulders. I have a list of who's calling in from around the country. I like your perfume, said Ritter. Wonderful. I can make it through the night with that knowledge. Now let's stick with the game plan here. We're going to party later, Karen. Conrad, give up. How many times have you asked me out? One of his aides dropped several pages of questions in his short speech planned for the end of the broadcast. Sixteen times I've asked you out and I keep a list of everything. Well, chalk it up to experience. The list and times of our scheduled callers are under your mic. Ritter held her wrist. Well, you don't know what you're missing. I know, I know, she said laughing. Your live guest will come out after the first break. Good old Will Jordan. Pay him and he'll twist the data any way you want it twisted. Dimitri shot across the room. Conrad, I would attempt to quell your giddiness. I am not giddy. Yes, you are. You're gloating all over yourself. I've seen you turn it on. Keep it low-key. Oh, it's not my nature. You want to do the show, Dimitri? Just practice your damn speech. I took a considerable amount of time writing it. Ritter held the large print paper in his hand. The speech would last less than ten minutes before they cut to break. Then Will Jordan would arrive in the studio. He scanned the callers. They had scheduled Hollywood people, politicians agreeing with his positions, whatever they might be, and two former presidents. Ritter pushed the papers aside on the counter. The main thing was to remain loose and keep his sense of humor. His antidotes and wit would bring him through any challenge. The desk phone rang and he casually picked it up. Susan's voice was low and sensual. Good luck, Conrad. I'll see you in L.A. next week. My pleasure, Susan. How are you and how's your family? Family's fine. I've already reserved apartment 16. Dimitri says, I have to be careful with the press all around now, he said, looking up at Dimitri. We can be discreet. I'll email you when I get there. Nervous? No, excited. About me or the announcement? Both. Good luck. Dimitri folded his arms and gazed down at Ritter as if he were a recalcitrant schoolboy. Any liaisons will be handled by me, and that's it. You worry too much. I have to. His cell phone sounded again. Meritokas. Ritter picked up the speech again and scanned what was written for him. Dimitri yelled into the cell phone. I don't care what the hell you say. I told you a long time ago. You're alive due to the grace of God. Don't threaten me. I won't stand for it. <laughs> New girlfriend? asked Ritter with a grin. 
Dimitri's eyes burned. Fuck you, Conrad. What did I say? You have no idea what I've done or what I am doing to maintain your power. Without me, you'd be some second-rate disc spinner in the boondocks. I'm the best, Dimitri. I am the voice. Then he tilted his head back and laughed. You need to chill out. Look at me. Ten minutes till airtime, and I'm going to eat them right up. Dimitri shook his head and hurried off the set. Ritter grinned and cupped his hands behind his head. They were positioning the cameras for the last time now. The bearded Will Jordan appeared offset and waved. Ritter gave him the thumbs-up sign and readied himself to broadcast live around the world. Catherine viewed Tucker's arrival in her room as a quasi-date. She ordered snacks from the bar, some beer, and soft drinks. A few minutes ago, she dragged the large TV monitor stand next to the dresser and set up chairs between the two beds. In the mirror, she brushed a comb through her wavy auburn hair, adjusted her glasses, and applied a muted pink lipstick. The knock at the hotel room door startled her. She pushed the TV remote button. A woman on Channel 22 read a quick news summary near the top of the hour as Catherine backed up. She twisted the deadbolt and opened the metal door. Tucker wore new jeans and a green striped jersey. He handed her a small bouquet of daisies, mums, and baby's breath. I stole them off one of the restaurant tables. No, you didn't. Did you? He smiled as he walked in. I see you've set up for Sputnik's announcement. I had forgotten that name. She stuck the flowers in the large water pitcher on the side table. Thanks for the flowers. That was nice of you, Tucker. About time your life was brightened up from them dreams. Amen to that. She lifted a glass. Beer? Coke? Beer would hit the spot, said Tucker, taking his front row seat. All the networks have been running feeds on their newsbreak segments. Every time I see Ritter now, I think of the oak trees on Route 3A. Or Bud's grave. She handed him the beer and a glass. Well, 10 p.m., Channel 22, it's time for The Voice. Tucker smiled but quickly furrowed his brow. What you just said. He flipped the beer can tab and the gas whooshed from the inside. She shook her head as guitar music for Ritter's show began, but she quickly turned down the volume and watched the graphic collage sweep across the screen. A shot of Conrad Ritter walking into his office carrying a briefcase merged into video clips from a number of his other shows mixed with photos. From Orlando, it's the Conrad Ritter Show. And now, ladies and gentlemen, the voice, Conrad Ritter. The back camera zoomed by two forward cameras and the director brought Ritter's wide face and dark caved-in eyes into focus. His words resonated with sincerity and clarity. Good evening. I'm Conrad Ritter. We're going to take a little different tack tonight on what may be my last broadcast. He swung to his right as the second camera picked him up. His perfectly tailored blazer and his bold red tie suggested an aggressive appearance. During the past few months of reflection and careful consideration, I have felt it incumbent on me to delve into the possibility of running for governor of Florida. Looking to a political career is not without risk. I have enjoyed, as they say, a long and successful run both on radio and television. However, there comes a time when moral responsibility outweighs personal popularity, where one's duty to state and country assume a new dimension. Again, he switched cameras. 
Some people have branded talk of my running for elective office as taking advantage of my status as a member of the media. Well, that may be true, and I don't deny that everyone in America and many around the world know of my celebrity. To those detracting pundits, I say celebrate the celebrity status. Yes, I use that name recognition as a positive force. I will use it in a way to bring issues to the public to make our children safe in their schools from attack and the threat of drugs, to send forth moral responsibility for all those in authority. Let us take that responsibility and hand opportunity over to all our citizens. As Tucker stood and applauded, Catherine smiled and leaned back. Then she pulled him back to his chair. This guy is good, Catherine. No one ever denied that. He's so believable. That's his greatest asset. Sure, he can read what they gave him, talk and discuss issues, but he's so credible. No wonder he got to where he is today. Yeah, articulation and tampering with Bud Kerrigan's car. Tucker folded his arms as Ritter prattled on. I think he just does what he's told, you know, read whatever they put in front of him, but he does it with conviction. Catherine poured more soda and stuck a straw into the glass. As she sipped the icy bubbles into her mouth, she reflected on what Tucker just said. Maybe Dimitri controlled Ritter so many years ago. She faced the TV screen again. Tell me, Conrad, where would you be without Bud Carrigan's money? Of what I believe about this country. I love this country. The citizens of this country deserve leadership that reflects their desires and needs. Service to our citizens, not lip service. I have enjoyed my time behind the microphone, but the time has come to move on to new ventures. Tucker pretended to yawn. As of 11 p.m. this evening, I am resigning my position with the Conrad Ritter Show. I will make a full-time commitment to win the nomination of my party for the office of governor of the state of Florida. I will give it my best shot. And for those who support me, I give my thanks. And for those who don't, I ask you to come aboard. Thank you for being my loyal viewers. We'll be right back. The TV screen filled with a younger photo of Ritter with longer hair and sideburns as he spoke in front of a group of college kids in the 1970s. Ha! Three cheers, said Tucker. The Massachusetts map crinkled as he spread it over the blanket. Ritter's younger image covered the screen again. On a second camera, farther back, he sat with a gray-bearded man. He introduced the man as an old friend and pollster. Both men first talked about the current political situation in the country, and specifically Florida. Over the counter, they spoke of old times and Ritter's career, but they never mentioned Plymouth or WXBN. Tucker rolled off the bed and retreated into the bathroom. Then someone rapped on the outside door. With trepidation, Catherine stared at the metal door, but fear stopped her from answering. The bathroom door flew open, and Tucker bolted across the room and put his ear to the metal. Who is it? Dan Jensen, said Jansen, his voice muffled through the outside door. Tucker raised his brows. I would say uh, we should let Mr. Jansen in, Miss Jenna. Amen to that. Tucker brushed back the door chain and twisted the brass knob. In the yellow outside light, Jansen stood silently in a navy windbreaker. His ruffled white hair had thinned and he looked messier than he did on the dance floor. 
With a raspy, tense voice, his dark eyes peered up at Tucker. I have to speak with you. I know more than I said back at the Seaview. May I come in? Yes, uh, of course, Mr. Jansen. Please do, said Tucker. Thank you. He walked through the doorway, but his eyes immediately swung toward Ritter on TV. Oh, boy, there he is. I saw him on my TV, and that's when I made up my mind to come over here. Can I get you a drink, Mr. Jansen? asked Catherine. Oh, I gave up the booze a long time ago, but I will have some water. And please, it's Dan or Danny. As she pulled a bottle of water from the room cooler, Catherine noticed the tension in his clenched fists, and he seemed obsessed with Ritter on the TV. She handed the water to him. Please come in. What, pray tell, brings you by here? Him. Funny, I didn't think Conrad Ritter had the ability to move people around at will, said Tucker. You'd be surprised at what he has the power to do. Jansen sat in Tucker's chair and rubbed his fatigue-worn face. Then he turned away from the TV. Congratulations. You're the first people in 35 years to talk about Billy and Shane. How do you even know anything about them? He looked up at Tucker. You can't be that old. Tucker looked at Catherine. No, of course not. Catherine smiled. How old are you, Tucker? Old enough. She sat on the bed across from Jansen. Shane and Billy were murdered. Now how can you know if that's true or not? I could never prove it. Never! He removed his blue handkerchief and dabbed his forehead, his breathing bordered on hypoventilating. They disappeared after going up to the old junkyard, crossed the Carver line. It's not there anymore, but back then, I know they were trying to prove something about Bud's car. The brake line was drained, said Catherine. Possibly, and probably a nice guess. No guess. That's how he lost control of the car. Jansen shook his head. They set him up for sure. Rizzo. I had a dozen witnesses over the years who told me they saw him with both Conrad and his manager, a, a, a con man named Dimitri Maritokas. A mechanic in Brockton swore he heard Maritokas order Bud Kerrigan's death. He coordinated the whole thing with Rizzo. Catherine sat on the edge of the bed and handed the glass to Jansen. Rizzo was ordered by Maritokas to kill Kerrigan. Jansen gulped the water. I never had proof. No proof, damn it. Dimitri Maritokas was or is Conrad Ritter's power. Maritokas practiced law down in New Jersey. Ritter met him when he was in college down there. Ritter owed him some money from betting on football games. Really? asked Catherine, looking at Tucker. But Maritokas recognized Ritter's talent. He forgave the debts and followed Ritter back to Plymouth. Rita seemed to sense all this, said Catherine. Ah, so you've been up to the station. Jansen gulped more water. I'm telling you this, but who the hell are you? Tucker perched on the edge of the bed. Let's just say we have both received some uh, information about Bud's death. I knew Bud well. What a wonderful man. Naive, but wonderful. Jansen took another swig of water. His eyes moistened and his thoughts seemed far away. Who would give you this information? You wouldn't believe us if we told you, said Catherine, and Maritokas conned Bud Kerrigan. Schmooze Bud and got him to invest 80000 for a project on Route 44 called Capitol Hill. That was big money back then, right? Jansen shook his head and set the water on the table. But there was no Project Capitol Hill. There's a plaza and a supermarket up there. 
Exactly, said Tucker. The bastard took Bud's money and then had him killed. Rizzo, Dimitri, and Conrad were involved with the purchase of WXBN. I never understood why May lost everything after Bud died, and she didn't know where the money went. And I have to say at the time, I did wonder about Conrad at age 22 buying the station. And you're right, Dimitri was and is a bastard. Again, how do you know all this? Does it really matter? asked Catherine. Well, I don't know, he said, finishing the water. You want another water? asked Catherine, rising from the bed. Sure, my doctor says I have to watch my fluids. I tend to get dehydrated. You know, all that dancing and everything. Just who was Rizzo? Nick Rizzo was a mechanic from Brockton and a part-time security cop, security guard or something. He was hired for special events. He still works for Ritter as a security guy to this very day. Well, that's interesting, said Catherine, grabbing another cold bottle, and she swung it over to Jansen. Real interesting. I know he sabotaged Bud's car. Thank you for the water. You see, I was only hours away from them finding that car. His car was an Oldsmobile 88. Bud Kerrigan's car? Asked Tucker, sitting up straight. Yup, they towed it away from Carver, and it was gone for good. I was too late. Tell us how this all came down, Danny said Tucker. See, on the night of Bud's death, Rizzo was out there in the parking lot of the wayside, said Catherine. I should have known you'd know that, too. She shook her head. No. I know he did something to the car. You say it was the brakes. The waitresses said Bud had two glasses of wine. That was the usual for Bud. Jansen lowered his head, and when he looked up, his eyes were teary. See, I'm the one who found Bud. After the crash, they didn't want me looking into it later. But when I heard Bud only had two glasses of wine, I became suspicious. On my own, I traced down the description of a motorcycle in the area. Nick Rizzo owned a motorcycle. Later, I had an unsubstantiated report of Rizzo being seen with Dimitri. And Maritokas continued to work in the real estate office after Bud's death, asked Tucker. Meritokas left the office at the same time Conrad moved west to be on the air in L.A., early 60s. I don't know how he got that job. And then Rizzo went west? asked Catherine. Jansen tightened his face. Yup, and I'm sure it was no coincidence. Did Rizzo work for Dimitri out west? Jansen's eyes were heavy and he took a few deep breaths. Yes, and like I told you, in the 60s, Conrad got big. He reported on Mutual and then on ABC. What about Dimitri's connections? Well, I heard rumors he was tied to crime people in New Jersey, but damn it, I couldn't link anything. I went down there. Nobody would talk. And when I pushed it, I was threatened with all these phone calls. Later, my wife was threatened. We're talking about power, raw power. Did Dimitri ever know you were trailing him? I didn't use my name, but somehow he knew what I was doing. Oh, boy. My old man used to haul for them type of people. He said, just stay clear of them and deliver your load. They did the dirty work here, said Catherine, which centered around buying the station, and then Dimitri maneuvered Conrad forward, and he made it big. Buying that station got Conrad on the air, and it got him syndicated in major markets. Jansen set down the water. He rubbed his eyes. Bud's niece and her boyfriend disappeared right at the time of the land scam. Everyone thought they had eloped, but they never came back.
Catherine nodded and her eyes filled. Bud's car held the answer, said Tucker, standing and crossing his arms. See, there was this guy named Sid Horowitz, said Jansen. We met him. He had a stroke. Sid swore to me one morning at the donut shop three years ago before he got sick. Rizzo got that car out of action, but he never said where the car went. Ah, so much time has passed, Danny. Have you got anything else? Eleanor Crowell lived in a house near the rock and heard loud noises. I talked to her years later. I became convinced that someone discharged a weapon at the portico downtown. Bodies and Shane and Billy were sunk in the bay, said Catherine. Come on, I, I don't understand how you know all this. Catherine pressed her lips and stared at Ritter, taking calls on the air with Will Jordan. She stroked her chin as she turned to Jansen. You want to find the truth, don't you, Dan? Well, yeah, of course, all these years, and I haven't solved it. No, you haven't proved it, said Tucker. She slid closer to Jansen and held his wrist. Doesn't matter how we got our information. We intend to prove it. Well, you'd better bring your lunch, he shook his head. I look at Conrad, popular for so long, and there's nothing I could do about it. And here he is now, running for governor of Florida. Do you have any witnesses or anything in writing? No, we don't. They're never going to get caught said Jansen, finishing the water. Sid knows more, but who can question him? He may have direct knowledge of Rizzo being paid to kill Bud. I would say that Sid called someone when Shane and Billy searched for the 88 in the junkyard. That is at the heart of it, I agree. He looked at both of them. Who are you people? Are you DEA or private investigators? Neither. We came here on our own. We just have information about Shane and Billy. Catherine smiled. Dan, can you meet us tomorrow at the nursing home to talk to Sid? Well, sure, but don't be hopeful about Sid talking. And I don't mean that because he's sick. I've been trying to pry information out of him for 40 years. Maybe a deathbed confession, said Tucker. Catherine held Jansen's hand. What's the old quote? Facing the hangman in the morning sharpens the senses. Jansen stood and watched the TV as he slid toward the outside door. We can give it another try. He looked at Ritter on the monitor. After all these years, I, I owe it to Bud. Well, if Ritter and Demetri are guilty, then it has to come out, said Catherine. Well, I pray to God it does. He shook Tucker's hand, but Catherine hugged him. Good night, Dan. Tucker gradually pulled open the door. Thanks, Danny. Jansen nodded, and with a distant look, he walked into the dimly lit motel parking lot. Tucker and Catherine watched from the doorway as he rounded the building. Tucker shook his head. Guys lived with that knowledge all these years. He did his best, said Catherine. She squinted as she scanned the trees across the street. A murky figure stepped up from the woods. Sacalatita! Sacalatita is out there! This is insane! Well, I don't see nothing. The ghostly image of the doctor moved through the thicket and then faded into the woods. She turned and held on to Tucker. I'm losing my mind. He held her shoulders. Listen, I, I don't know why you're seeing him, and I don't know why we've had dreams from 40 years ago, either. She looked over her shoulder to the light shining through the tree trunks. This is true. Jansen should have given testimony. Come on, Tucker. Who's going to believe Dan Jansen? Too many years have passed. Tucker pointed at her as he spoke. 
Not only do I want Ritter and company brought to justice, but the plain fact is, I just don't like that man, and I'm going to get that son of a bitch. Chapter 13 I'm Conrad Ritter, and I'll be seeing you. The camera retracted slowly, and in the shadows, Dimitri held up both thumbs. Ritter saw the first camera's red light blink out as he shook hands with Will Jordan. They were rolling the credits now, but the control room had cut the audio. Will raised his hand into the air. The voice reigns supreme. That's good, Will. Uh, very catchy, very catchy. Tell Dimitri about that. We can use it in the campaign. Well, you know the campaign shouldn't be taken for granted. I know you. You'll be lackadaisical. The second light went out and Ritter unsnapped his clip-on microphone. This thing is in the bag. There's no competition, Willie. I've never felt more confident. Well, you can feel confident, but you do what the pros tell you to do. Dimitri had not appeared on the set. My gut tells me what to do, Will. Always has. Where the hell is Dimitri? I just saw him off camera. Yeah, you do what your gut tells you, with Dimitri's approval, of course. Well, of course. He stood and scanned the set. Not like him to be hiding on an occasion like this. He smiled as the set crew broke into applause. A couple of people shook his hand as he walked around the counter. Congratulations continued into the outside corridor. Will opened the swinging doors and they headed back into the dressing rooms, but an odd depression enveloped him as he walked beside his friend on the white wax tiles. Ending his broadcast career meant a time for celebration, and a gloomy attitude was not the smart thing while attending the parties later. The press would report the smallest detail. Conrad, I, I have to make a few calls. Where are we going? Ritter stared at Dimitri's closed door. He heard what Will had asked him, but had trouble answering him. Out to the parties. Listen, Will, I have to talk to Dimitri. I'll meet you in the lobby in a half an hour. Sure, sure. You all right? Yeah, I'm fine. I'm fine. Okay, buddy, I'll see you in a half. He smacked Ritter's shoulder and entered the stairwell under the red exit sign. Ritter nodded and watched the stairwell door slowly close. He knocked on Dimitri's wood grain door. A few seconds later, one of Dimitri's suited security men cracked open the door and with an order from Dimitri, fully opened the door. Dimitri and a table full of security people looked up at Ritter. You're going to need security people from now on, Conrad. Where's Nick? Never mind, Nick. You're in a different league now. I'll have a limo brought around back for you. We're meeting Senator Morton at 11.30. We have to make haste. Well, this thing doesn't have to do with Plymouth, does it? Dimitri's wide lips spread outward as he pushed the chair back from the table. He took Ritter's elbow and escorted him into the kitchenette. Plymouth? Why would you think about Plymouth on a night like this? Because I heard the cell call come in from Dan Jansen on the set earlier. Dimitri's dark eyes swung away. Now you're the one worrying too much. Ritter grabbed his arm. We should have gotten rid of Jansen years ago. Jansen is an old man. He has nothing and can prove nothing. It doesn't reach the threshold, Conrad. Really? I know the media, Dimitri. It doesn't matter if you've done anything. Never mind, we have done something. Any accusations will be investigated. I've been telling you that. And now let me tell you one thing, and don't think I won't do it. What are you talking about? Ritter smiled with a confidence Dimitri could not dispute. I won't let anything stop me. If I have to go back to Plymouth myself, I will. 
Dimitri's dark eyes open wide. Oh, the hell you will! You let me take care of Jansen! Ritter leaned against the door casing and stared at his old friend as fear spread through his gut. This should have been done way back when. Trail would have been established with Jansen dead, said Dimitri. You really want to take the chance with Jansen now, now that we're running for office? I told you, Jansen is 85 years old. He clenched his fist and exhaled. Ritter sensed his frustration as he pressed his lips. Look, we have some things to do. I remember when you told me Jansen was 75 years old, 80 years old. Don't worry about it, Conrad. Why is he calling you? What the hell did he want? He was just upset that you were running for governor. Well, the media will find him. This is bullshit. Dimitri drifted by him. He's not a threat. Now get downstairs, Conrad. I don't want to see you without security men. Ritter tracked him across the suite. Did he threaten to go public? Unimportant, said Dimitri as he lifted up his cell phone. This is Dimitri. Bring the limo around to the lobby in 15 minutes. Dimitri, yelled Ritter. Cut the bullshit. Dimitri set down the phone. As I've always told you, you just worry about your career. I'll handle the rest. That formula has always worked. But at that time, I wasn't asking for the public's approval, said Ritter. Let me tell you something. You have always sought the public's approval, Conrad. Sheila dragged her long hair over his neck and squeezed him at the waist. Ritter leaned toward her as if he were changing camera angles. So, how long have you worked for the senator? Oh, about six hours. Her hazel eyes brightened and she produced a huge smile as her red velvet cocktail dress rubbed against him. Are you really going to be governor? Well, I don't know. I thought I might just marry you instead. Just like that, she asked. Why not? Oh, you haven't been married for a while. I read your book. Dimitri stood with his back to the long food table with his cell phone pressed to his ear as he turned. He closed his eyes and nodded. A slight smile crossed his lips as he put away the phone and stepped up to the bartender at the opening between the kitchen and the front room. Excuse me, Sheila. I'll be right back. I'll save your spot, she said, squeezing his arm. Ritter dodged a few guests as the bartender slid a whiskey into Dimitri's hand. His bald-headed little friend's dark beard stubble pushed through his smooth, pale skin. He sipped the drink as Ritter approached. Have a drink, Conrad. Who are you talking to on the phone? Logistical problems. You're going to be campaigning all week. He squinted as he always did when he spun the big lie. You better start telling me what the hell is going on here. Or I'll fly back there. You're making a scene. Well, maybe I should. The past will kill us, he said through compressed teeth. The past has been cleaned up. Well, what the hell does that mean? Ritter bolted for the balcony. He swung open both doors and stepped into the night air. The bright city lights extended to the horizon, but his mind flipped back to the small radio station atop the hill overlooking the ocean. Vividly, he imagined WXBN's red and white antenna blinking in the night. Returning to Plymouth seemed probable. Chapter 14 The wind whipped the flurries against Catherine's face as she hiked across the snow-sprinkled hotel parking lot. She adjusted her stocking cap and opened the van door. Tucker turned down the steely guitar music. Why'd a woman always take so long in the bathroom? She climbed inside and grinned. 
It's a prerequisite for being a woman. When are you going to take me out in your rig? When we get done with what we have to get done. She stared across the snow-covered lot. Let's see if we can get Sid Horowitz to say something. Well, in light of what Jansen told us last night, we need to get to these people. I don't care how long it's been. His fingers whitened on the wheel as he thought. Maybe Billy and Shane are two souls who want justice. And we are just the vehicles, she said. But why would I see Sacalatita at the cemetery and then outside the hotel room? Tucker maneuvered the van under the hotel canopy and checked the road as he pulled out. The van engine whined as he headed across the seawall between Front Street and the matted Blue Bay. He spotted something in the rearview mirror. What's the matter? Not sure. That monster Ford could be following us. She turned. A few hundred feet back behind the van, a dark SUV traced their route. A group of school kids gathered in a straight line under Plymouth Rock's surrounding granite monument. The SUV stopped at the traffic light. More children exited from a yellow bus near the river park. Tucker checked the mirror. Ah, here come our buddies. Tucker, she said, turning back to the approaching SUV. He swung right and up a sloping hill. Then he screeched the tires and went right again. How am I doing? She turned. Very good. Tucker's face contorted as a muffled report came over the radio. and He turned up the volume. Jansen. What? Catherine turned toward the dash speakers. The announcer read a simple statement. Jansen was an officer of the town police force for 35 years, a member of Trinity Church, and played in the town's softball league well into his 80s. There were no witnesses to the hit-and-run accident that occurred around 2 a.m. this morning outside the Seabew Retirement Village on Summer Street. Catherine raised her hands to her mouth. No, no, that could not have just been an accident. What was he doing out there at 2 o'clock in the morning? Tucker veered off the road past the park. They killed him. They killed that nice old man just because he was on to what they did. How will the police ever find out who hit him? They won't. Tucker spun the van tires in the dirt, reversing direction, and some of the school children turned as he started back to the rotary. Somebody up there at Sea Village has to know why Jansen was wandering around in the middle of the night. He sped past the hotel, but slowed at the intersection and then raced by the parked cars through the village hills. A few older people slouched in their winter coats sat on outside benches in front of the complex. With no police cruises present or any sign of the accident in the daylight, Catherine questioned the validity of the radio report. Tucker pulled to the curb and they both hurried outside. He approached the group hunkered on the benches. Does anyone know what happened to Dan Jansen? Killed in the middle of the night, running in his pajamas, said a little woman, rummaging through a white pocketbook. He must have got Alzheimer's last night. There's nothing wrong with Dan Jansen. Does anybody know why he was outside? Did anyone take him outside? Well, we're all in bed by midnight, said a man with thick glasses. Maybe Danny couldn't sleep. This isn't exactly a major thoroughfare, said Tucker. Kids are all out drunk after midnight. Some kid ran Danny down, said another voice. Was anybody over here looking for him last night? Don't know, said the man, his green eyes huge behind the glasses. Tucker rested the butt of his hand on his forehead. Catherine took his arm and led him back to the van. For the first time since she had arrived in Plymouth, she feared for their safety. Tucker stopped and lifted his index finger. Why would they wait all this time and then kill him now? Maybe it was an accident. No, those guys in the SUV aren't out for a Sunday drive. 
and I ain't hanging around here for him either. What about Sid? Tucker ripped open the van door and shook his head skyward. We really should lay low here, Catherine. People are after us. I don't think we're going to get many chances, Tucker. Tucker stared out and then nodded. Okay. Her throat tightened as she got inside and visualized Jansen in the hotel just hours ago. Dan Jansen lived out his life carrying all that knowledge in his head and now he's gone. Tucker had a tenacious intensity in his eyes as he strutted up the tiled walkway leading to Sid's convalescent home. Maritokas and Ritter are bastards for killing Jansen. People with immense power. The nursing home's main doors hummed open electronically. Tucker followed her over to a slotted entry mat and into the heated foyer. A pervasive antiseptic smell bordered on noxious as they stormed past the front desk and up the fluorescent-lit staircase. Tucker rushed to the second-floor side corridor. Sid ain't gonna say much. This whole thing is ancient history. According to Jansen, Sid must have figured out why Rizzo paid him to ditch Bud Kerrigan's car. Catherine breathed quickly as they headed down the hall. Sid knew something, or he wouldn't have chased Shane and Billy out of the junkyard and tipped off Ritter. Well, maybe he didn't trip off Ritter. Maybe he called Dimitri or Rizzo. She shook her head and stared at the floor. He placed his hands on her shoulders, and she gazed into his crisp eyes. Catherine, I don't care how flimsy this seems. Dan Jansen was just murdered, goddammit. I'm sure of it. These people, they sit back with their TV shows and their campaigns. It ain't right. No, it's not right, but I'm getting scared. Don't be. I have weapons in the back of my rig. He pursed his lips and placed his hand behind her back. They walked diagonally across the corridor but slowed at the open doorway. Someone had stripped Sid's mattress and his name had been removed from the slot behind the bed. She turned to Tucker. What the hell's going on now? I don't know, but I don't like it, said Tucker, his eyes sweeping the room. He took her hand into the corridor and sprinted to the nurse's desk. Excuse me, uh, Sid Horowitz, where is he? Who? asked a woman with short blonde hair and green rimmed glasses. Sid Horowitz. She dragged her ballpoint pen down the length of a perforated green and white computer sheet. He's in room 239. Oh, the hell he is said Tucker. I just came on duty 45 minutes ago. Can you find out? asked Catherine in a shaky high-pitched voice. Oh, yeah, sure. I know he's dead, said Catherine. We don't know that. A tall woman in a blue pantsuit emerged from behind the desk. Her black and white badge and photo ID read nursing supervisor. I'm Carol Lorenzo. Did you know Mr. Horowitz? Well, yeah, we just talked to him yesterday, said Tucker. I'm sorry, Mr. Hurwitz expired last night. I'm not sure whether it was a heart attack or another stroke. Catherine rocketed to the counter. He just died? The supervisor shook her head. Well, I don't know what he was doing in the physical therapy room. Physical? The man had no mobility. He was confined to a goddamn wheelchair. Calm down, sir. He could only use one hand, yelled Tucker. Well, sir, sometimes they get out of their rooms. Catherine smacked her fists on the counter. Come on! Have the police been notified of this? Police? Yeah, the police, she chuckled. The man was in his 80s. Why would we call the police? Tucker pointed at her. This needs to be investigated. Please, we don't need any trouble here. 
I don't want to have the state inspectors all over this place. Let me take down your name and I'll have the medical examiner call you. I think Mr. Hurwitz somehow thought he could do physical activity. Did anyone suspicious come in here last night? asked Catherine. I just got on, said the flustered woman behind the desk. Doors are locked at nine, open at nine, replied the supervisor. Tucker crunched his teeth as Catherine followed him into a tiny waiting area adjacent to the stairs. He sat on a vinyl sofa and placed his elbows on his thighs as he thought. Convenient deaths. She raised her hands over her mouth when she saw the white-haired Sacalatita duck behind the stairwell door. Oh, God! Tucker turned to his left and grabbed her shoulder. What is it now? Sacalatita, I just saw him move down the stairs. Stay right here! Tucker leaped from the sofa and rounded the doorway into the stairwell. He was inside for half a minute when he appeared in the hallway and shook his head. Nothing. God, what's happening? I don't know, but let's get the hell out of here. Maybe we ought to just drop this, Tucker, she said, following him. I'm thinking about it, he said, as they emerged into the chilled air outside the front entrance. His body tightened and he led her back inside. It's going to hit the fan now. What's the matter? Three guys parked near the van. They leaned against the bronze window frame. A light-haired man in a blue jersey and jeans poked his head out of the black SUV's open door as a stocky guy with stubby hair talked on a cell phone up front. The third man in a red shirt hurried across the lot to the SUV. He said something to the chubby crew-cut man on the cell phone. Tucker pulled her past the front desk. The blonde nurse on duty looked up for a second as they passed. He careened into the glass stairwell door and they leaped down a single set of concrete stairs. How do they even know about us? yelled Tucker as they scrambled down the stairs. How could they possibly know about us? They've been following us all morning in that SUV. We need to get to the van. He motioned her down the corridor and casually opened the outside door. She followed him along the first floor windows and around the building. He stuck his head around the corner. What do you see? One guy by the SUV. Okay, we move right along the front of the building. They'll see us. We have no choice, Catherine. He took her hand tightly and with his back to the bricks, shuffled along the outside gravel. Her heart cranked as she hyperventilated. Tucker pulled her left and directly onto the cement sidewalk within a few dozen feet of the SUV, and he escorted her behind the tall green junipers. Through the branches, the crew-cut guy stood rigid at the hood. I think that's Rizzo, older and bigger. Catherine studied his wide face and dark eyes. Oh, God, I think you're right. The van backed into a position near the three dumpsters. Tucker straddled the smaller bushes and then helped her onto the asphalt. They disappeared behind a wide tree trunk. He waited until all three men had left the SUV. Then he motioned her to the grass and they crawled toward the van. Tucker slithered up the side. He opened the door and pushed Catherine onto the seat. Again, he checked the SUV. Then he ducked around the hood and got in the driver's side. Okay, here we go. Tucker shifted without starting the rental and the tires crunched the parking lot sand as they rolled forward. Somehow, while peeking into the side mirror, he maneuvered the van away from the building and into the street. She turned as they gained speed back toward town. Oh no, they've spotted us. All three men piled into the SUV and the doors closed in unison. Tucker started the van engine as the SUV fishtailed across the parking lot. Catherine held the door handle and Tucker studied the rear mirror as if he were viewing a TV program. The SUV left the lot as Tucker accelerated toward the traffic light. Several bullets hit the van. 
They're going to kill us, Tucker. Tucker started a wide arc at the intersection as, as the SUV spun around the corner. Hold on. I don't see them, she said, looking in the side mirror, but they'll spot the van. Tucker turned onto a side street hill. Let's get out of town. Tucker banked the van into a gas station and bounced between the station and the pumps. The pump bell sounded quickly and he leapfrogged over the curb. Then he glanced over his shoulder as he turned up one of the side hills. We need to be smart, not fast. Catherine gripped the bench seat and peered out the back window. You need to get back to Samoset Street, that old Route 44. It weaves along the new highway. I don't see them. He turned left. We have to assume they're under orders from Maritokas and Ritter. They must be damn sure we're going to uncover something. I just don't know how they tracked us down so fast. There's Samoset Street ahead, said Catherine as she glanced in the van's side mirror. The SUV moved closer behind them up the hill. Tucker? I see him, I see him. He jammed the brakes and whipped the rental 180 degrees around. With a recklessness that shocked her, Tucker flew up a concrete driveway, rumbled along a three-decker house, and crashed through a stockade fence. The SUV stopped at the street, but this time a bullet pierced the rear window. He pushed Catherine onto the seat and maneuvered around a swimming pool onto a side street. More bullets punctured the fender. They can't outdrive me. Tucker careened into her yard and this time moved precariously between a ranch house and a chain-link fence. The SUV skidded at the far end of the fence. Tucker emerged back onto Samoset Street and spun left. You need to go right. Let them think I went right. Tucker drove for several blocks and then rolled right. He proceeded under the highway and paralleled Samoset Street. Where to now, Tucker? Boston, or even Providence, or I could even drive to Albany. We can get a connecting flight to anywhere, but remember, Catherine, we have no proof of Ritter or Maritokas doing anything wrong. They've covered their collective asses for sure, and we'll end up dead. Well, what can we do? His moist eyes and brown hair askew gave him a deranged appearance. Elude them. He looked up from the map and checked the mirror. Here we go again. He's got a rifle out the window! Tucker spun the van across a rounded lawn in front of a ranch house and down over the curb. They needed to reach the highway. Another bullet penetrated the rear window and exited the roof. Tucker accelerated up the highway on-ramp. Within seconds, he had the van flying near 100 miles an hour. There! I hope you know what you're doing. He looked over his shoulder. I never said I knew what I was doing. Chapter 15 stretched his arm over the concrete barricades. His swollen right hand ached, but he persisted as the crowd cheered. Dimitri and five new security men moved along with him. The media coverage of his now redundant speech at the tiny airport pleased him. A caravan of minicams, lights, and recording equipment trailed him past the orange sawhorses. With little orchestration, he had consistently earned top billing on the cable news broadcast. Combined with the interviews for the late night, his recognition rating soared. Dimitri tugged his arm and called over the crowd noise. Let's get back to the limo, Spot. We're scheduled for the speech at the VFW. Good, my hand is about to fall off. He nodded to the security people and they formed a wedge between the reporters. The shiny limo door opened. They lifted Ritter and tucked his head into the car. Dimitri crossed his legs on the wide leather seat and had the limo phone at his ear. Once the security men were safely inside, the driver inched his way across the tarmac. Have Rizzo call me in the limo. 
Where is Nick? asked Ritter. Dimitri held his arm before he spoke. Conrad, you want a drink? Where is he? Back east? We have a campaign to run, sput. Don't sput me. Ritter stared out the window at the extended airport fence and then leaned toward Dimitri. Then he is back there. Somebody is screwing with my past. Don't worry about it. Well, that's crap. Dimitri's cunning look made Ritter nervous. Right. I want to speak to Nick Grizzo. No. Ritter raised his brows again and gazed out the window as the limo pulled away. We'll see about that. Dimitri kept his cell phone to his ear as he left the crowd. Nick, I can't hear you. Hold it. He covered his ear and leaned toward the building alcove. Okay, go ahead. When the bastards got away. Who? That woman, Jenner, and the dude named Tucker. We lost them as we followed her van up Route 3 here in Massachusetts. We fired at them, but that cowboy was driving like a maniac. We couldn't keep up with him. What do you mean you couldn't keep up with him? You're talking about your old stomping grounds. He looked back to the crowd outside the podium. Well, where the hell can they go? I suppose back to Ohio. He lives in Arizona. That's enough. I want them both dead within 48 hours. You assume too much. I say they hang around Plymouth. If they're still around, Nick, you won't be. He clicked off the transmission and moved back through the audience. The last of the locals spoke about the big chance in coming to Florida. Ritter stood on stage and gawked like a dummy at his speech papers. Smile and stop looking at that speech as if you were learning how to read. Well, what happened with Nick? asked Ritter, leading him to the rear of the stage. Get on stage. This thing is going live on C-SPAN. Oh, and did I approve that? I think it's time you start telling me what you're doing in my name. Ritter shook the speech in front of Dimitri's face. This speech means nothing as someone is turning up the garbage of the past. I knew that if I ran for office, this would happen. You're getting paranoid. Nobody knows anything. This speech, even though it's in this trailer trash town, will be seen nationally. They'll replay it twice before the weekend, so just shut up and get out there. Ritter stepped closer and bared his teeth. Damn you. This affects me as much as it does you. Then he smiled and put his arm around the taller Ritter. You just let me handle it. It's really going to be all right, Spot. Everything is under control. I don't have time to be worrying. Exactly. You're going to win this damn thing, and then we'll set our sights in other directions. I'm telling you, nothing will stop us. Tucker returned to the Samoset off-ramp. He only went a few hundred feet and then steered the van behind the new cars. I thought we were going to die, Tucker. It's all right. Those fools are long gone. He checked the lot and then led her along the shiny cars. We need to get back to my rig and get my sod off. I need to call Roz is what I need to do. Tucker stood with his arms crossed as she took out her cell phone. The cars whooshed down the highway beyond the chain-link fence. Roz's line only took a few seconds to connect. Roz? Catherine Marie, I couldn't wait after your call. I'm flying out to Boston, then I'll call you. Roz, that's insane. It's, it's, it's way too dangerous back here. I have my ticket. Just stay put. We're boarding now. I'll call you from Boston. What time, Roz? What time? 
She pushed the end button and looked at Tucker. She didn't tell me what time she's landing. She's coming back here? Catherine closed her eyes and nodded. Stupid move. Stupid move. Too dangerous. She should have checked with you. You don't know, Ross, she said as they headed into the dealership. Act now and then ask questions later. Tucker shook his head. I was thinking about this when I was out running them goons. What if Roz's DEA friend somehow gets the info back to Ritter? Through the dealership window on an overhead monitor, Conrad Ritter waved his arms at a campaign rally on C-SPAN from earlier in the day. Tucker! Tucker, look! Tucker's face soured. Feels like I'm in the middle of a Ritter torture chamber. Look at that SOB. He guided her to the entrance, warded off a salesman, and then moved up to the monitor. Ritter, dressed in a striped shirt and dark tie, stood next to the podium as a local VFW commander extolled his candidacy for governor. He beamed as if he deserved every flattering word. The commander turned to his left and with a wide sweeping motion yelled into the microphone. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you Conrad Ritter, the next governor of Florida. Through the thunderous applause, Ritter waved, shook hands with the commander, and then gripped his elbow as he made small talk. The commander again motioned toward Ritter. Ritter acknowledged the crowd, slowly bowed his head, and then mouthed his thanks. Then he clasped his hands together as if he had just won a heavyweight title fight. He wandered over to the podium and positioned the text. The applause continued even when he raised his hands into the air. Thank you, thank you. They love you, said the commander. Good crowd. Thank you, Commander Donnelly. You know, you know, Florida needs new leadership. Florida needs new jobs. Florida always needs tourists. And Florida even needs a new talk show host. He had the odd habit of letting his tongue roll out as he raised his brow. My name is Conrad Ritter, and I need a new job. Can you help me? If they only knew, Catherine, if they only knew, Catherine, if they only knew. Well, he is a national celebrity. Ritter, using his hands freely, delivered an eloquent and impassioned plea for social justice in his state. All the lines in the speech were well-timed and his cadence perfect as he enunciated every word. Although he spoke in generalities, the words and promises elicited some form of hope. Catherine faced Tucker. He is good. Good and dangerous. How do we get the truth out? She asked, staring at Ritter's icy eyes. There must be someone in the media who gives a damn about what we have for information. They like him. Nobody cares. They don't want to see him trashed. He's their boy. Tucker stepped closer to one of the monitors. I don't see Dimitri Maritokas. Catherine pretended to superimpose Ritter's face over the old photo on the wall back at WXBN. That's definitely him in the photo in the background at the station 40 years ago. No gray hair, tight face, youthful. What about the Statue of Limitations, Tucker? Ain't no Statue of Limitations on murder. It's become quite apparent that Catherine and Tucker are targets and their lives threatened, perhaps by Conrad Ritter himself. They were all around Plymouth, Massachusetts, including Ritter's old radio station, WXBN, desperately trying to prove Ritter's guilt. Next week, we'll see the pressure building on Conrad Ritter, now paranoid that his murderous past will be unraveled. 
and we'll see the lengths that Dmitry Maritokas will go to protect Conrad Ritter. I'm Robert P. Fitton, creating solvable mysteries in this time and in the distant past. Be back next week, same time, same station, WXBN, Plymouth, Massachusetts, 106.9 on your FM dial.